Hello, and welcome to Rise of the Data Cloud. Today's episode features an interview with Peter Bayliss, founder and CEO of Sisu. Peter is also an assistant professor of computer science at Stanford University, where he co-leads Stanford Dawn, a research project focused on making it dramatically easier to build machine learning-enabled applications. On this episode, Peter talks about the founding story of Sisu, machine learning, predictive analytics, and much more. So please enjoy this interview between Peter Bayliss, founder and CEO of Sisu, and your host, Steve Ham. Well, it's very nice to meet you. And I wanted to start off with some questions about the company itself and you know how and when you started it up. I've been, as a journalist, I've been following startups in Silicon Valley for about more than 35 years. So it's been quite a while. And I'm still fascinated with the story. So if you could tell your founding story, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. So CSU started as an offshoot from my research group at Stanford, where I'm on the faculty. And I showed up at Stanford in 2016 as an assistant professor of computer science and was really interested in this trend we were noticing with some of our industrial sponsors. And then also even looking more broadly, kind of FANG, the Google, Facebook, Netflix, the world, where even the top kind of 1% of companies that were just so far ahead of so many others in analytics didn't have that many analysis resources to answer all the questions about the data they were collecting, where, you know, sometimes the, you know, the ads team, for example, would get a ton of analysis resources. But as soon as you went to the mobile engagement team, you know, you'd be looking at a substantially lower headcount. And if you went down even to like an individual ad campaign or a product manager, there was no way that they were going to get analyst resources. They just get kind of a login to some kind of portal that would give them access to huge amounts of data, but but not really help them make use of that data on a daily basis. And, you know, the, the broader trend is that, you know, as data has gotten easier to collect, we can kind of afford, in my opinion, for the first time in history to start to track not just every business metric, which is almost table stakes, but, but really record these metrics in really fine granularity, where I don't just have, say, uh, transactions on a retail um, branch or transaction on mobile, I have tons of information about you know, demographics and attribution and user activity and, and a ton of context associated with each event that, that essentially is hard to make use of in a meaningful way using kind of legacy uh, BI and analytics environments. And so we started CC in 2018 after having done a bunch of research in scale means of analyzing, contextualizing, and operationalizing the types of large amounts of structured data that, that we'd seen at kind of FANG scale, and we're seeing increasingly in the market, especially in Snowflake. Um, right. so, so, so it was really kind of this combination of huge market trend with a bunch of hard research and kind of tons of people who, who, who had done the work to gather this data but weren't really sure what to do next. Are you talking about being able to have data about the data, metadata and being able to, to track that or some kind of governance around the data? Yeah. So, so I'll give a concrete example. Many of our users, you know, start with something like Tableau where they've got a business metric they're trying to optimize. It's plotted in Tableau or Looker or any number of BI tools. And, and, and they know what's going on day in, day out in terms of say engagement or retention or margin or volume. So, so it starts with a business user that has a metric they want to optimize. Right. And in some sense, if I'm say a marketing operations manager, my job is to help make recommendations 
to the rest of my team in terms of coming up with the best ROI for my marketing spend uh, to drive activation or engagement or a certain type of user. And where CSU comes in is there's already a bunch of tools for telling you the what behind each of these metrics. And what CSU is about is helping understand the why. So when activations increase by 1%, why did they increase? Is it something about a new campaign? Is it something about a given demographic? Is it something about a given product? Is it combinations of these variables? What we're really doing is we're using all of the, like when I call context, you can think of these from a data perspective as more columns associated with say every conversion. Mm-hmm. And we basically provide that context that's most relevant to say, you know, teenagers uh, are using the referral program and driving, you know, half point increase in conversion rate this week compared to last week. And the promo code that we released two months ago actually saw a decline of a quarter point. And so when you see that actual quarter point increase, it's actually a combination of something is getting better, something is getting worse. And the whole value prop here is that you would never take the time to look at all these different combinations. There can literally be hundreds of thousands to millions of these possible factors inside of a modern warehouse, but no one's got the time to go and look at that to really get to the why. It seems like part of this is about context, understanding context. And part of it is separating the correlations from the causations, because often there are these apparent patterns that are, that someone might think are causative, but in fact, they're not, they're just, they're related, but they didn't cause something to happen. So it sounds like what you're saying is your technology is able to penetrate deeper and really make the connections, you know, kind of a firmer and more convincing connection. That's one way of putting it. I think Mm -hmm. there's no substitute for a true A-B test, right? Actually trying a new campaign out in market or releasing a new feature and having a control group and so on, right? That's a whole whole field of statistics and so on. So to get true causality, you really need to do what's called an intervention or run an experiment. Mm -hmm. What we're really doing is we're helping service the naturally occurring experiments and almost the lowest hanging fruit that's already present in the data to help guide that action, that experimentation that someone's already going to do anyway, because there's already say the rest of the marketing team that's going to be releasing new copy and going to be doing new campaigns and going to update their targeting. And so the way I think about the CC's value prop is it's almost by identifying these, you know, statistically significant, highly impactful factors within the data, we can almost nudge each department in which we're deployed towards making different decisions they would otherwise make. And they were the ones who ultimately take the action. But, you know, our job in some sense by delivering this why is to sort of arm these business teams with the information that might cause them to go left instead of right or go target, you know, millennials instead of, you know, middle-aged folks or, or whatever the, the, the combination happens to be. And it's right. in some senses is, you know, all of machine learning is based on correlation statistics and again, you know, interventional studies are a whole nother bag of wax. Like anyone selling you causality without A-B testing is, is probably selling snake oil, or at least, you know, get a lot of interest in statistics world if that were possible. But I think of it as there's too many factors to keep on top of, especially when you think about the data that's refreshing on a daily or an hourly basis, business is changing faster and faster, that even just being notified about significant changes and factors that are having a large impact like driving lift or increasing order value, 
or decreasing margin, that can be a real game changer for a business compared to just plotting a metric and looking what's happening with the metric without understanding the why. Silly question. Why did you call the, the company Sisu? Is it <laughs> yeah, Sisu so or Sisu? It's Sisu. Yeah, yeah. So, so Sisu is this Finnish word. And I'm actually part Finnish. My ah. grandparents were Finnish immigrants to Canada uh, back in you know, the 70s. And uh, it's a word with no direct kind of uh, translation in English. But in a sense, it translates to this type of stoic determination, tenacity, and grit, bravery. It, in, in, and the thing that I like about Sisu a lot is that it's not like a goal. Like, you know, you don't achieve bravery or resilience you don't achieve CSU. It's kind of like a way of living and working. And it kind of means like, you know, you're going to run through walls and you take these big swings and stay hungry. And I think it reflects not only how we operate as a company, but also how we're kind of running through walls for our customers, taking these big bets for the analysts that use our product. You know, the great analyst never stops asking why, right? They want to look at an answer from every angle and question every assumption and find kind of the most comprehensive way to answer it. So Many of our users already have CSU uh, as a as a personality trait, and by giving them CSU as a as a software, it's you know turns them into into superheroes. Is there a scenario that you can talk about of a of a customer using your technology on kind of a real world problem? Yeah, yeah, totally. So one of our customers that actually uses CSU and Snowflake together is House Call Pro, where they use these technologies together to understand and diagnose changes in metrics like revenue and recurring revenue and customer retention. And as a business, house calls trusted by about 15,000 different home service companies that, that help manage all sorts of home service and, 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 and kind of business related functions from, from, you know, how do I schedule? How do I bill and all, and all sorts of stuff. And in a really volatile market, especially with macroeconomic conditions, it's really critical for that team and as a really nimble and agile team to understand how their customer behavior and usage is, is changing, right? So not just like, how are we doing in terms of, in terms of uh, recurring revenue, but, but why is this changing? What types of new user patterns are we seeing? How should we better optimize a customer experience? And our core user and kind of executive uh, sponsor at Housecall, his name's Vanessa, she runs a pretty lean team uh, underneath the, the chief operating officer. And, you know, before CSU, you know, the COO had basically, you know, almost given up on, on asking all the questions that he had because, you know, she didn't have the resources as with most heads of analytics. In fact, every head of analytics I've talked to who's intellectually honest will say, I don't have the resources to answer all of the questions that are coming from my COO. These metrics are defined once a quarter, more often, you know, once a year, but the data is constantly changing. And, and what we essentially are able to do is look at all of the types of, of data associated with, say, customer usage and revenue, everything from channel to specific products and features that are being utilized to firmographic information. And at each point in time, essentially point out, you know, what's moving the needle for house call and how do they do more of the stuff that's working really well and how do they uh, ad- uh, you know, address and adjust for changes in consumer behavior in this market. And that's been really um, rewarding to be able to work with folks like Vanessa and other kind of data analysts at places like Samsung, looking at uh, customer uh, conversion and upgrades of handsets, all the way to you know, store operators like Mixed, which is a salad chain, basically looking at how do you optimize time to get someone their order. And you know, 
in a competitive environment, especially with all of these uh, delivery services, right? How do you optimize for loyalty? And, you know, the fun part about all of this, and I just, what we keep coming back to is the data exists, right? It's always CSU plus existing enterprise data. And we kind of view CSU as kind of the unlock to take this existing process, which is often reactive. Business owner asks a question, analyst team runs a fire drill, comes back, speed that up by at least an order of magnitude, and then just continuously deliver these results as the data keeps updating. So are the core users data analysts, data scientists, people like that, or, or is it available to people who are less skilled uh, in writing algorithms or writing queries? Yeah. So one of the reasons why I started CSU is that when you look at the people who are, who are using dashboards and reports today, they are not SQL experts, or they may not have even heard of SQL, and they're certainly not data scientists. And for me, you know, as a founder... You know, I just couldn't live with a future in which the best thing we'd have in another five or 10 years is a Python notebook or a, a, a SQL-driven BI tool. So, 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 so with Sisu, we're going after that user who is conversant in their data, but is not a SQL expert and may not even be a data analyst. What we find is a core constituent for us is that analyst who, you know, sets up dashboards and reports but also, increasingly, it's also embedded within the business. People with titles like, you know, FP&A director mm-hmm. or marketing operations analyst or just store operations analyst, right? These are people who are embedded and really looking at the data, but are not the ones setting up the warehouses or setting up the dashboards or so on. And it is these teams who get asked kind of why dozens of times a day, right? They're often viewed as a service function, they're creating dashboards or they're going explaining things to the business. And our goal and our belief is that these analysts, whether or not they're in a center of excellence or they're embedded, are the most critical people to navigate change and kind of these uncertain markets, right? So the name of the game today, especially in the current macroeconomic climate, is not predicting what will happen next. It's understanding even what's going on, right? So right. understanding in the moment what's driving the change and then informing these decisions well, that window of opportunity is still open. So no matter what you call these people, what their title is, they're increasingly viewed as kind of the trusted people to inform that business strategy with more than just gut impact, right. gut feel. Gotcha. Now, most of the examples you've given so far today have been kind of marketing or consumer oriented. Is your product focused on that segment or is it more broad? So with the type of statistical analysis that we're running, like so many other uh, types of machine learning, you need data to make this stuff work. So if you're running a clinical trial and there's 30 people in the clinical trial, that's a large clinical trial. But if it turns out that, you know, eating carrots has not improved cardiovascular health, there's only so many more hypotheses you can test. Maybe broccoli helps improve cardiovascular health. Maybe it's potatoes. Maybe it's eating grapes. Like with enough trials on a limited amount of data, you'll eventually find some that are false positives. And this is why there's a lot of reproducibility crises in kind of core science today, just because historically we've been limited by the amount of data that we have, especially in sort of data sets and tasks that involve people. What I think has happened over the last five years is that at least in consumer-facing businesses, these businesses for the first time ever are essentially flush with data on the order of hundreds of thousands, if not hundreds of millions of events coming in every single week about their business. And what those large data sets represent for us is a ton of training data and a ton of essentially input that we can start to derive signal. And so when you think about the scales that we operate at, up to hundreds of millions of records, 
Direct-to-consumer businesses are a great fit. We also do a little bit with higher volume B2B businesses. So for example, Upwork is a customer. They have a two-sided marketplace. They look at things like match rate and margin. And it's high enough volume that we can also provide value there. Where we don't play, and what I think is a really hard statistical problem is, if you're a B2B company and you've got 700 customers, um, there may not be enough signal in the data in order to draw meaningful uh, inferences. Right, and, right. And, and from a user perspective, we want people who are not making decisions on an annual basis, but people who are constantly making decisions that they can easily test and learn, which overwhelmingly, on, if you're making decisions on a, on a weekly or a daily basis, is typically one of marketing. It's easy to change your campaigns. Finance, easy to change pricing and allocation right. of spend. And then ops. What was the last thing? Oh, like operations. So store operations, operations okay. or, or logistics or, you know, any kind of like automated process. Like what we don't want to do is inform someone's decision about how to build the next great mobile phone when, you know, there are so many you know, qualitative factors that go in in terms of taste and, 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 and in terms of, you know, what's been tried in the past and human ingenuity. Uh, what we will do is we'll help inform that product launch where product managers and product folks will be in the room. But it's really about you know, how do you quickly test and learn to make decisions. And at the end of the day, like customers get value from CC, not because we tell them things that are interesting. We tell them things that change the decisions that they would otherwise be making. And the more decisions that are being made on a more regular cadence, the more opportunities we have to subtly move the business forward. You made a reference before to the fact that we're in the, in the middle of the COVID crisis and that a prediction isn't as important today as it was, you know, five months ago. And people are really focusing on just understanding what is happening right now because of the chaos, because it's just an unprecedented situation. Doesn't that challenge uh, machine learning? I mean, because so much of what machine learning is, is kind of past data and patterns that pop out of it. So how do you adapt machine learning for a time like this? Exactly. It's a great question. I mean, in some sense, uh, I think it was Sequoia that said that COVID, and this was at the very start of this pandemic, was kind of the black swan event of 2020. And the whole point of a black swan is that, of course, it's probable and that it's not a a non-zero probability, but you're not going to model it uh, as precisely, as cleanly as as you could otherwise, because there's just less training data. And you see this in a lot of ways in the failure of things like predictive maintenance, right? Like when we were on campus working with some device manufacturers and industrials, they wanted to predict failures, right? So they could go and maintain these generators and field equipment. And it's like when you've only had two examples of a generator failing, (laughs) you know, it's very hard to model that unless you have a ton of domain expertise. And same is true when you think about modeling the economy or consumer behavior right now. We've never had like a standstill on a national level, no less a global level in so many different countries. And so just understanding what's going on in a consumer's mind, how do national policy decisions, which are also in uncharted territory, impact what's going to happen next? You know, you can ask any any chief revenue officer in enterprise business today what their what their 2021 revenue projections are. And anyone who tells you that they're certain about them is bluffing, right? So there's just huge uncertainty predicting the future, even if you've got domain experts to go and do this. And so for our perspective, you know, where we think the most value is to look at trailing, say, one week of data, one month of data, where there's going to be ultimately a strategy driven by the business, right? So when we talk with retailers that are now reopening, right, they have a thesis in mind, and they are likely the best people to actually use human ingenuity, reasoning to understand, okay, which stores to reopen first, how do we comply with local regulations, which many times are unclear, and so on. 
And our goal, and I think where ML can shine, is in that near-term window, looking at the last week or the last month of data, what is working and what is not. Mm-hmm. And the value of the data in the machine learning is not so much to predict what will happen next week, but to really check our intuition. Right? If we believe that suburban malls are going to see a larger increase in same-store sales than urban environments, stores in urban environments, well, the data can tell us if, in fact, that is true. And as we decide the next week what stores are open, right, I can use the findings from this week to further inform my strategy. And so from a process perspective, it's, it's keeping the human in the loop as opposed to giving a black box model, which will spit out, you know, a forecast of what might happen. It may not be explainable, may not be interpretable, and may be wrong when you have these, I mean, we could have another stimulus package coming out, you know, next week. And no one would be super surprised if that happened, but I have huge macro influence. And you see this in the stock market as well. So kind of the long story short, there's so many variables. You're going to have to go based on some synthesis that's likely human generated in order to, in order to make macro scale decisions. Right. And where we think that the data has the opportunity to shine is in testing the reality of what's happening on a short-term basis as we're executing on those longer-term strategic bets. You mentioned the relationship between Sisu and Snowflake earlier. When did you get together? Uh, how do the companies and their technologies work together? The reason why we spent so much time with Snowflake is customers adopting Snowflake are on the cutting edge of, of kind of cloud adoption. And we find that many of the customers adopting Snowflake are, are some of the most progressive leaders in data, right? And that they see the TCO, they see the value, and, and Snowflake also supports, in many cases, substantially more advanced functionality from an architectural perspective than many other alternatives in the market. And so we see Snowflake as a clear leader in that warehousing space and essentially being the source of truth for these businesses. And where Sisu comes in is we say, look, you can buy a bunch of BI licenses and throw them on top of Snowflake, but all the investments in data engineering you're using in terms of pulling data from APIs, uh, doing ETL, cleaning up this data, right? Sisu can help you unlock that truth for more people in the business. You know, we can help you use all that data to answer these critical questions of why, not by telling you what your metrics should be or building you another dashboard, but by understanding what metrics are you tracking today, what's important to you, and keeping you up to date as that data keeps updating. And so, it, it, it's kind of this virtuous cycle where even from the IT perspective, they like CSU because CSU lets them use all the data and justify additional spend in terms of pulling more, more data streams in as opposed to just having that data sit there and having people only look at the high level metrics, never digging deep because they've got businesses to run and not enough time. I want to drill down a little bit on the relationship with Snowflake and understand how the, the cloud data platform really enables customers to do things that they couldn't do or couldn't do as well previously. You know, you, you talked about how important the relationship is with you, but what's the, what's the differentiation from the customer's point of view? So for these customers of these cloud warehouses, there's just an ability to provide insane speed and scalability, which to a first approximation aren't really cost effective, in some cases not computationally feasible in an on-premises environment. So you can afford to run more analyses of the same data by spinning up and down instances transparently to the analyst. And you don't have to worry about, you know, the intern nuking the report for the CEO 
while they're doing a bunch of exploratory analyses, for example. And, and when you have literally on-prem hardware, you're going to be constrained by how quickly you can add servers to your data center. And that's really slow compared to clicking a few buttons and scaling up and down. And we've seen this happen in the more general cloud market with compute and how you know, services like EC2 have enabled elastic compute. And I see Snowflake as a natural extension of this. Just the ability to go up and down allows you to capture more data at a way lower cost and then perform more computationally intensive analyses that otherwise would have been essentially infeasible on a even a very large rack of servers. And for us, this is kind of the leap we first observed at Stanford working with some of these very large tech companies and that with a ton of compute, you can run way more kind of statistical hypothesis tests and models and so on that you otherwise wouldn't be running on-prem. And then couple that with the data that's available inside of a cloud warehouse, which is consolidated as ETL, it's, it's, it's arriving more, more quickly and, and, and in a way that's fresh. And also the data is less siloed, right? So many times we talk to people who have, haven't made that leap, you know, they, they groan about how their data is in 30 different databases with different access controls and so on. And it's like that world is, is very quickly, you know, becoming, you know, the world of yesterday, just, be, just because cost, convenience, scale, it doesn't make sense to run this stuff on-prem unless you've got some insane, you know, data security requirements, in which case there's options like GovCloud. You, you made a couple of references to your, your work at Stanford. You're on the faculty, you're an assistant professor. Now you've stepped back somewhat from your faculty activities to start and run CSU. Do you still kind of balance the, these two roles together or have you pretty much stepped into the entrepreneur role full-time at this point? So it's a great question. I started to see because I was having more fun shipping code and, and building out products from campus with some of our collaborators than writing more papers. And I think for me, fun is having that kind of impact and seeing, you know, these techniques and, and, and algorithms move the needle on real customer problems. You know, we, we had done some work with the Microsoft product analytics team looking at things like Skype call quality and call volume and some of the Google ads folks, uh, we've written papers with, with these folks. And, you know, that's like the most advanced team in the world. And yet we were doing something that was net new for them in terms of how they were using their data. And I couldn't pass up the opportunity to go and build a company. And really, for me, it's about the team that combines a skill set that I wasn't seeing people coming together organically. So specifically, there's a lot of database engineering to be able to do this compute, right? We have to do this in a specialized engine because it's just so heavyweight to provide interactive speed. You need net new database engine, not storage. Like we leave the storage, the snowflakes, of the world, but the, the analysis on top of that, you know, it's database problem. Relevance, you got to do ranking and relevance, which is an ML problem. What results are useful to this user right now in this period of time based on what they've done in the past, the data we know and everything we know about them. And then there's design. Like, how do you make this useful to a user who doesn't care about machine learning, doesn't care about data, just wants to answer a business question? And, and so that drew me over to CC was the ability to work with people who are way better than I am in so many different categories and, and build a team around this. And as faculty, it's, you know, Stanford's an amazing place. You get, you know, the best students just showing up on your doorstep asking to work with you. It's, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches, but you ultimately can't hire designers and engineers and, and a field team and marketing. Like I tried hiring engineers and designers, but you know, you can't compete with private industry there unless someone wants to do sabbatical or something. 
At Stanford, you were the co-leader of Don, a research project focused on making it dramatically easier to build machine learning-enabled applications. Could you tell us a little bit more about Don and also about how Don relates to Sisu? Absolutely. So Don was a multidisciplinary collaboration with folks in computer architecture, uh, computer systems, databases, machine learning, where we got together back in actually 2015 when we were first putting this together and we're kind of scratching our heads looking at the quantum leaps that were being made in, in ML technology and benchmarks like ImageNet and kind of looking at this gap between what academics were doing in terms of more and more accurate machine learning and what people were actually adopting in practice and that there's this almost irrational exuberance around what AI ML can do when you look at these demos but when you actually try to take a pre-trained model and apply it to enterprise data, you don't get the same mind-blowing results as you might initially think. And what we realized in our core thesis in the Dawn project was not that we needed newer and better models, that you need to get on the whiteboard and necessarily come up with you know, new network architectures or new training algorithms. But what was kind of missing from the picture was, was essentially systems that can go end-to-end -end, all the way from the data and the domain knowledge that an expert inside of an enterprise already has, all the way to a model that's running in production that can be updated as new data arrives and can be you know, diagnosed with quality assurance and, and serve predictions to people who've never heard of ML. And we came together to do this kind of crazy project to ask how far could we push this with collaboration with industry sponsors. And we had a bunch of great folks you know, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, VMware. VMware has been a really strong supporter uh, since the start. Ant Financial, range of these folks to basically fund research that no one in the NSF would fund because it's just too far out there, too speculative. We would build a bunch of prototypes and release them to the world. And then we'd learn and iterate. And this was in some sense how myself and my co-founder, Matei Zaharia, were trained as graduate students as part of a five-year project called the AMP Lab at Berkeley, where Matei started mm -hmm. Spark, and I did some of my dissertation research on databases. And we wanted to bring that model to Stanford because we felt we could take bigger swings. And my philosophy at Stanford was, look, the value of being an academic is taking big bets that are going to be wrong some of the time, but where you'll learn along the way. And we felt like by building these types of end-to-end -end systems, we would learn a ton and do a bunch of good research and produce a bunch of good PhDs as a result. Right. And so where Don relates to Sisu was that I had, even before I showed up at Stanford officially, started looking at this problem of what do we do for ML on top of structured data? Mm -hmm. You know, Neural networks work really, really well for images and text, but most of the world's data, and I would argue most valuable data is in tables. It's in right. Snowflake. How do we make this data more useful, especially when you've got elastic compute to put on top of it? And so the earliest prototypes of some of the projects we did in, in Dawn were direct inspiration for what we built uh, in Sisu in terms of the types of problems we went after, like monitoring user metrics, explaining what's going on, making time series uh, more interpretable to users, and really getting that human-in-the-loop data interaction. And you know, a bunch of my students continue to work on interesting problems in Dawn, everything from stream processing and building models over streams, building models over compressed data, um, kind of 
all topics related to systems for machine learning on structured data. Right. Um, but we really took our production experience and our experience productizing some of the prototypes at Dawn as inspiration for what ultimately became the CC platform. And by being able to work with, again, designers and professional engineers and an amazing field team, there was just this opportunity, at least from my perspective, to build something bigger that, that you just couldn't do in a lab context by the time we had completed some deployments at, at relatively large scale in Don. I know you're a champion of democratization of data and also obviously of, of machine learning AI. I want to ask you to put on your visionary cap for a second here. Look ahead five years or more. How do you think the business landscape and society will have changed because of these incredible technologies that we've been discussing? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I think about a lot. Keeps me up at night, just thinking about all the different directions in which all of this energy and excitement around data is going to, going to take it. It keeps you up at night out of excitement, not out of dread. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I, I'm not, I'm not nice. a big believer in Skynet. These guys yeah. who are going and gals going for, you know, AI complete, I, I'm not holding my breath and I don't recommend it on this podcast yeah. as either. And, and so, you know, the first way I'll answer this question is people think, we'll hear about self-driving cars, which by the way, still have not, you know, made it to mainstream, despite the fact that every self-driving car is trying to do the same things, navigation, pedestrian avoidance, uh, avoiding other cars and so on. That's a, that's a, fairly verticalized task, still hasn't made it into ma- mainstream. They think about, they look at their business and say, oh, I'm going to have a self-driving marketing department. I'm going to have a self-driving sales department, self-driving product. It's like, that's like lofty aspiration for sure. But I think it actually doesn't give enough credit to the intuition and organizational knowledge that so many organizations already have and what people do on a day-to-day basis, especially as knowledge workers, right? I just, I think that the idea that AI will automate everything is, is a bit naive when you look at what these models are capable of. Right. For me, the five-year vision here is one in which, you know, you've essentially augmented the rote and routine and repetitive tasks inside of businesses. Some of this is the form of startups you see in terms of robotic process automation. I think a lot of the diagnosis of businesses and what's going on, that's right for automation. That's what, that's what we're doing with, with CSU, obviously. But in a nutshell, it's really about taking the, the boring stuff and better informing people about what's going on so that the people can do what they're best at, which is you know, creative thinking and strategic thinking. And where I see this going long-term, especially when you think about what's happening with systems like Snowflake and the increased amount of data and context being put into these systems, you already kind of run businesses based on metrics in the form of you know, at the top of every, every company, you've got the CEO looking at P&L and a number of top metrics like engagement or retention, laddering down through the org chart all the way down to increasing the leading metrics within each business unit and with each department. And it's not just the tech companies that are running their businesses based on KPIs. This is happening everywhere. Fortune 100, Fortune 500, they've got dashboards. And, you know, where I think the future of this kind of augmented enterprise goes is everyone inside of the company knows not just where they want to go, but how they're doing and how their strategies are playing out in real time. Mm -hmm. And they're actively adapting and responding to changes in the business that are capturing their data in real time. And the actions that they're taking, because so much of this data comes from software as a service platforms and are being taken digitally, you can actually track those actions such that if I'm Jack Dorsey at Twitter and I've got my 10,000 employees below me, 
I should be able to get a feed of here's everything that happened inside of Twitter today. Here are all the changes we've made. Here are all the decisions we're making. Here's what's really moving the needle. You're not going to replace the people. You're going to make them more powerful and you're going to give more organizational understanding of what's working and what's not. And I think you'll see this dramatic productivity improvement because you're going to get what you would get if you could afford to put one analyst per, say, business decision maker. But even at the largest scale, the Googles of the world, they can't afford to do that. And so that's where the augmentation, I think, is so rich. And that's where I see the future of all the structured data is heading. It's, it's just knowing everything going on inside the business all of the time and having this ladder up in a way that reflects the org chart and organizational priorities. You know, since the beginning of artificial intelligence as academic domains, people have been talking about general machine intelligence. It's always been a long way off. Do you think that that's, I mean, are we closer to that or is it even desirable to pursue that? I think there are substantial downstream effects if AGI is realized. But based on current technology, I believe we're years away in the sense that if you look at where these advances are coming in terms of AI ML, there are kind of two major patterns. One is you're getting variants of neural network architectures where you wire the parameters up slightly differently and it gives you an incremental boost on a certain task. And people even got to the point where you're delivering neural networks that are designed by neural networks. It's like machines designing machines. Mm. And that sounds scary. Like, you're like oh my God, this is, gonna, this is how we're going <laughs> to get Skynet. But the reality is it's kind of like million monkeys typing. And what you end up with is something that can recognize patterns and in some cases even memorize patterns a little bit better. And I think to say that that approach is going to lead to AGI kind of doesn't do justice to the complexity of thought and our ability to yeah. construct higher order concepts and narratives and, and so on. And maybe we get there, but I think even if you look at you know, the pioneers of the field, folks like Jeff Hinton, they're not saying, okay, all we need is a little bit better neural network architecture. They say we need a fundamentally different approach that can actually leverage these higher order representations and concepts uh, in order to make decisions as opposed to just playing you know, a billion games of Atari. Yeah, my simple-minded thought is that we already have humans with brains. Why do we need to reinvent them? <laughs> well, I think that's a fair question. I think the, the real reason why I think that AI is, is, is going to take off is not that we will have that replacement. It's that there's just too much sensory information to, to, to take in, yeah. right? Like, like right. you and I have relatively low bandwidth inputs in the form of our eyes and even what we can process in our brain. And right. for me, it's, it's like, you know, why is the internet useful? Like, why is Google useful? It's that I can, I can look through more data than I would ever have a chance of looking through in my entire lifetime if I had all the time to go look at, at every page on the internet when I want to go figure out, you know, who uses Snowflake as a customer today. Like, I just, it's one, one click, right. I go, right? And, and for me, it's that, it's that ability to use massive amounts of data where I actually think you'll start to see the lift. It's like information retrieval, not just for text, which is what you think of on the internet, but for structured data. Like this problem of relevance and ranking on top of tables is like totally understudied in large part because most people aside from Google didn't have large amounts of structured data until very recently. And so Google used to claim, they don't say this anymore, but they used to claim more data beats better algorithms. 
you know, the reality is today, like it's not just Google that has all that data. It's like people who adopt Snowflake and have cloud data, they have more data and they can actually get, you know, value out of these. And so that doesn't lead to AGI. I just want to make that point. Like more data doesn't lead yeah. to necessarily lead to AGI. You can learn more concepts, you get more long tail, but more data does mean you will need more AI or ML in order to prioritize the limited bits that we as humans can process in any period of time. Right? We're just, we're low throughput, yeah. high creativity. So let's take things that are right, right. high throughput, low creativity, and combine them. You mentioned the augmented enterprise. I, the whole idea of augmentation of human thought, of, of kind of a collaboration between the machine and the humans, I think that is certainly the model that seems attractive to me. And, you know, when you can look in the future, it, it paints a picture of a happy future, not a machine-dominated future. So it's kind of comforting in that way as well. But on this idea of the you know, augmentation, I think it's Steve Jobs, maybe it's incorrectly attributed, but I believe it's Steve Jobs who said that the computer is a bicycle for the mind. And I like that idea in that, you know, a bicycle is not a uh, tank, you know, it's not a fighter right. pilot, but it's the thing that helps me move in the ways that I want to move, you know, efficiently. It's not completely automated. You know, I'm, I'm right. doing a little bit of work, I'm steering the thing, I'm keeping it balanced. And I think that's much more of a reasonable metaphor in that yeah. it's, it's not wholesale replacement of the mind. It's this collaboration. And even the user interface design for human in the loop analytics, we're still in its infancy. I mean, the last 20 years of consumer internet have all been optimized around getting people to click more ads and look at more content on Facebook and post more Instagram pictures. But when you think about what happens on a daily basis at work, like we, like most enterprise applications have no predictive qualities. You know, I get the same view every single time I go to my inbox, every single time I look at my calendar, every single time I look at documents. And it's that kind of augmentation where, whereby what I expect in a consumer setting, personalization, recommendation, relevance, that's where I think you'll get like the, the step up of the bicycle for the mind. Like maybe the bicycle with a motor. <laughs> my, my favorite metaphor is just thinking about, you know, funneling and summarizing all of this data that's at someone's fingertips is constantly changing and really telling me, what do I need to know now that's going to change my plans for the day? And if I can do that like once per week, if a computer can do that once per week for me, that's pretty astonishing. That's a low bar. Yeah, that's making life better. Peter, it's been wonderful talking to you today. I want to thank you so much for your time. I felt like some of the things we talked about, like the, the augmented enterprise, I think that's really meaningful. I liked when you spoke about structured data and pointed out that it, it may not be as appreciated as it deserves. I, I think you said it, was the, it might be the most valuable data. And I think that's, you know, maybe that was an idea that was back in the 90s, was lost, and it's been found again. So thank you so much for your time today. Great talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. The Data Cloud World Tour is making 21 stops around the globe so you can learn about the latest innovations at Snowflake's Data Cloud at a venue near you. Join your fellow data leaders at one of our full day events to network with Snowflake customers and technology partners, attend educational breakout sessions, and learn how to drive more value from your data. Find an event near you at www.snowflake.com slash data dash cloud dash world dash tour.